Good evening. Hope you've had a good day and good week and are excited to be here tonight in the house of the Lord as we return to our Wednesday night study in Habakkuk. It has been a a great privilege to preach through Habakkuk over the last, I guess it's been a month or so. This is a, a prophet who lived at a pivotal moment in the history of Judah and was a contemporary of other great prophets. And we've spoken about that, Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah. And this came right after a golden period of reform, right? Josiah's Reformation, this great period in the history of Judah, and yet it falls so fast under the leadership of Jehoiakim. Judah falls into sin and apostasy, violence and injustice, and we saw in that first week Habakkuk cry out, what are you doing, God? Oh God, I cry out to you and you still do not answer. I cry out violence, violence, and you do not save. Now there's an accusation here. We've spoken about that. Habakkuk is saying, God, why are you doing nothing while your people suffer? Why are you not intervening? Why are you not doing something to to save your people, especially when the powerful wreak havoc upon the poor, resulting in great violence? Now, God answers Habakkuk, doesn't he? God answers him and says, listen, Habakkuk, I have a plan. I've got it all under control. The judgment that you want to fall upon Judah will occur. If, if someone told you how I would do it, God said, it would boggle your mind. You could scarcely believe it, and yet I'm going to reveal it to you now. God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I'm raising up the Babylonians to, to come and, and act as my instrument of judgment upon Judah. Now, this doesn't please Habakkuk. We've spoken about this. He, he says, God, what are you doing? I know we must live because you've made promises, but I don't understand what you're telling me. I'm crying out to you that society is unjust, that the the powerful gobble up the weak and the poor, and yet you are sending a more wicked nation to judge us. How does it make sense? You're simply perpetuating the problem, God. And God answers him, doesn't he? And God says, don't think for a moment. Don't think for a moment, Habakkuk that Babylon, the Chaldeans, will escape their own judgment. I'm working in this way now. I'm using the Chaldeans as my instrument of judgment now against Judah, but I will use other instruments of judgment against them. And there's a larger picture here, isn't there, that God is going to bring judgment, those five woes, he's going to bring judgment upon all those who are at enmity with him. And so, my friends, outside of Christ, outside of the righteousness of Christ, outside of living by faith as the just are called to, there is nothing but judgment. That's what he says, the proud, their soul is not upright in them. They are destined for a fall, yet the just shall live by their faith. So my friends, we've seen all of this. We've seen this message of judgment. We've seen these five woes. We looked at those last time. Now, lest we think those five woes are only aimed at Babylon. I would remind you that those are the very charges that Habakkuk made against Judah. And I think they stand to a large degree as woes of judgment upon all those who are rebels against God's glory. All peoples at all time who are at enmity with God, those who would plunder nations, who seek security and earthly riches, who prosper through the shedding of blood and sin, who spread iniquity and who worship idols, All such people shall fall under the judgment of God. And my friends, there's only one way to avoid that judgment. We've already heard it. 
Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. It is only by faith that we can stand in the righteousness of Christ and thus flee from the wrath to come. All of this is not only the key to understanding this letter, but understanding all of the scriptures. Habakkuk 2.4 was a key for Paul to understand what God was doing throughout time. And of course, Luther and millions of others have, have really seen this as a key to understanding biblical theology. What then does Habakkuk do with this truth? I'm asking you tonight, what does Habakkuk do with this truth? Here is a man who has been given incredible revelation. What does he do with it? Well, I want us to look tonight as we read chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16, and we will close the letter next week, next Wednesday night. So let's read Habakkuk chapter 3, 1 through 16. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigayanoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Peron, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light he had rays flashing from his hand. And there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence, and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of the, of the Midianites trembled. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck, Selah. You thrust through with his own arrows, the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. And when I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at, his, at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Amen. The word of the Lord. As we think about this text tonight, this uh, incredible text, I want us to think about three points. First of all, Habakkuk's surprising psalm. Second of all, God's awful might. And third, God's glorious salvation. I think if we can see the text, we'll see those three points tonight. So beginning first with Habakkuk's surprising psalm, we go back to the question, what did Habakkuk do with the knowledge that he was given? When God responded to Habakkuk with these woes and this revelation of knowledge of what God is doing, 
What did Habakkuk do with that knowledge? He wrote a song of prayer, a sacred song, or as we usually call them, a psalm. In fact, five different psalms have in their heading that they are prayers. Psalm 17, 86, 90, 102, and 142. Many scholars believe that Habakkuk was a musician as well as a prophet because he has written this psalm that is so musical. In fact, it has musical notations in it, doesn't it? All you have to do is look at it. You see uh, several times uh, it says Selah. And in addition to that, you also see uh, that it's got this mentioning in the, at the very beginning of this chapter of a Shigayanoth, and it says according to Shigayanoth, and that's also found in Psalm 7. It has something to do with the pacing or mood of the psalm, although we don't know the exact meaning of it today. So these are musical terms. And you know, Selah is seen throughout the psalm, so you recognize that. If that isn't enough evidence, you can look to the very closing line of Habakkuk's psalm, and it has additional notation to the choir master that this piece is to be accompanied by stringed instruments. So there's no question this was intended to be a sacred song, a sacred prayer to be sung by the people of Judah. That's surprising, isn't it? Because it's hard to name other prophets who are writing psalms. So why did God want Habakkuk to do that? Why did God want Habakkuk to write this song? Well, I believe the answer is in the fact that God has said, write these things down that it might be remembered. And we know that one of the ways that Israel transmitted its knowledge was through psalms, the singing of psalms. And so, my friends, I believe that this was a psalm that was written to be sung, to be remembered, that God is at work bringing judgment to those who are his enemies. So, my friends, this is unique. This is unique its uniqueness signals its importance. We said earlier, this is a significant book of prophecy. It may be minor in length, but it is one of the most important books of the entire Bible. And this idea that it would be sung, well, it's still sung today. It's interesting that in the feast calendar of Israel, this chapter is read and sung on the second day of the Feast of Weeks. Now, that's one of the three main feasts in Israel that requires all men to travel to the temple, or at least did back in the day. So still to this day, Jews recite this text during that celebration. And it's interesting because that celebration is associated with the giving of the law at Sinai. And that would instantly remind me of the fact that God had said earlier to Habakkuk to record this vision for future generations and recorded how? on tablets of stone. We mentioned from the very beginning of that, uh, that that was significant, that no, that you just don't see that. That's not common, that prophecies would be instructed to be written down on tablets of stone, and again, tied it with the level of revelation that was given at Sinai. Now, many people might think that's overdone, but I mean, that's been argued through the history of Israel, that this prophecy, Habakkuk, summarized the totality of the law in chapter 2, verse 4. And of course, we recognize in the New Testament the importance of this letter. But again, it's read every year uh, during the Feast of Weeks. So this reminds us that this is an important prophecy that was meant to be preserved. It has something to say to all generations, and that includes our own. So all of this should signal to us that this is an important text, a text of great importance. That brings us to our second point. What does it tell us? Well, chapter 3 tells us about God's awful might. That's our second point tonight, God's awful might. 
Now, such a phrasing might bother our modern sensibilities because we're used to the term awful meaning bad or distasteful. But that's a modern understanding of awful, isn't it? There's an older meaning, one that we used to hear a lot, awful, which would mean to be full of awe, to be awe-inspiring, to be awesome in a sense. When I speak of the awful might of God, I, I mean awful in that way. It's the same way that the hymn writer Isaac Watts meant when he used it in his hymn, how sweet and awful is the place. He wasn't saying how sweet and distasteful is the place. He was saying how sweet and awesome or how sweet and awe-inspiring is the glory and presence of Almighty God. In today's text, we see the mighty, swift, and awesome judgment of our God. If you listen to that text a moment ago, you heard these things. In verse 3, he's pictured as traveling the route of Israel from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. Again, retracing, uh, reliving, if you will, the history of Israel as a people, being brought from slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land. Again, Habakkuk is drawing on the history of Israel to talk about God's triumphant power, his awful might and judgment and justice that he will bring on his enemies. He continues in verse 4 by saying, from a distance, one sees his glory emanating from his presence, and it covers the heavens and the earth with splendor and blinding flashes of light. God is awesome to behold. He's not just awesome in, in power. He's awesome to behold, and we know that no man can look upon him and live. That's told to us in the Scriptures. So again, you're seeing the, the emanation of his glory, right? His glory emanating from his presence in this awesome display of power. In verse 5, Habakkuk envisions God as having plague and pestilence following with him. Now, that's the imagery of divine judgment. It's found in the Old Testament, and it's found in the New Testament. Even in the book of Revelation, judgment flows against God's enemies in this very way, plague and pestilence. He alone can stand and measure the earth. That's what we read in verse 6. It's his creation. He surveys what belongs to him. Before him in his mighty presence, even the seemingly permanent things lose all permanence, all strength, all power, gone in the presence of this holy and mighty God. The mountains and hills, which seem as old as time itself, fall away. They remove themselves out of the path of Almighty God. That's verse 7. Now, here's a question for you. If the mountains tremble and they remove themselves, what will men do? As God draws near to Judah, you see the answer. The peoples of Cush and Midian tremble in fear and affliction. Again, we see the language of divine wrath and judgment being poured out on the seas and nations with the image of God's bow being unsheathed and his calling for many arrows. What an image of judgment about to strike. As vivid and as terrible as any in the book of Revelation. And in all of this march of power and judgment, there are subtle references to the past acts of God throughout the history of Israel. There's references to the Red Sea. There's references to Joshua. There's references to the book of the Judges. Habakkuk is saying that God has moved before, and he will surely move again, marching in justice, judgment, and wrath, threshing the nations. You see, in Judah's perspective, Babylon would be so immense and powerful but in God's perspective, they're like wheat to be threshed and tossed. You may remember the prophet Amos uses the same phrasing to speak of God's threshing of Gilead. 
God is pictured crushing the head of the enemy and laying bare from foundation to neck. You can see that in verse 13. And that is graphic imagery, isn't it? Of God splitting his enemies in half, splitting them in their midst. Again, laying bare his enemies, smiting the head of his enemies, its leaders, and slicing the entire nation all the way through. This means complete and utter devastation upon the enemies of God. Now, this is prophetic imagery, isn't it? Of a powerful judgment of the enemies of God and the enemies of the people of God. So if we've seen Habakkuk's surprising psalm and God's awful might, let us look at our third point tonight, God's glorious salvation. With as awful and terrible as these judgments are, there's an interesting way in which they are pictured. God is pictured as traveling with horses and chariot, instruments in this case of war, yet it's described as a chariot of salvation. When the text describes the threshing of nations, it says that God went out for the salvation of his people and of his anointed one. Now we can see why Habakkuk's perspective has drastically shifted. He shifted from fear and complaining to hope and praise. Why? Because God is not forgetting or forsaking his promise in bringing the judgment against Judah at the hands of the Chaldeans, but by bringing judgment to Judah and then Babylon and then all the kingdoms that stand against God, God is moving his plan of salvation forward. Now that's reason for hope. And that hope brings awe and praise. At the very least, he's been given a glimpse of the glory and majesty of Almighty God. Look at again at verse 16, what he says, When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself. Would any of us be surprised at this reaction? He has seen the awesome glory and might of God in this vision. I mean, it's what Isaiah saw, right? I mean, Isaiah uh, in Isaiah 6 has this great vision, right? I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and around him are the angels. Now, did Isaiah uh, count that as something to boast about? No, he said, woe is me. Why? Because God says, no one shall see my glory and live. Isaiah thought he was to be destroyed. Can you imagine that prophet Habakkuk? He's been questioning God. And here he is seeing this vision of the glory of God and its awesome power makes him shake and tremble. Rodness entered his bones so that he did not feel steady. He felt as though his body was failing him. You see, Habakkuk had seen a startling truth, but he'd finally come to understand rightly what God was showing him. Yes, there is to be a great and terrible judgment coming. Yes, the Chaldeans will be raised up. They will be brought by God to judge Judah. But that's not the end. Instead, it is the movement of God in covenantal faithfulness, working toward the ultimate salvation of his people. Now, that truth brings joyous peace to Habakkuk. Yes, he trembles in God's glory and his holy presence and his power, but he rejoices in God's faithful purpose so much so that he can now look beyond the temporal problem and see God's eternal solution. Yes, there may be hardship in the present. There may be, but it's all leading to future and final glory in the perfect timing and providence of Almighty God. And for that, brothers and sisters, we can join the prophet Habakkuk 
in offering a shout of thanksgiving and praise to our mighty and conquering King. Amen.